Welcome to the very first episode of Unramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Mark, I have a background in English literature and writing stories. And I'm Charlene, I have a background in psychology and social work. For our very first episode today, we are going to be talking about Stephen King's The Shining and its adaptation by Stanley Kubrick. Charlene is not in any way a fan of horror movies or horror stories in any way, so it seemed the perfect choice for this first episode. I mean, I wouldn't say not a fan of horror stories in any way, just it isn't the first genre I tend to go for, and I had never read any Stephen King before preparing for this episode. Okay. Uh, I have a particular aversion to spoilers. Doing this podcast requires us to deliver a certain number of them that I would usually shy away from, so we're going to put a big spoiler warning right here. There's going to be spoilers in this podcast, this particular episode of this podcast, for this book, The Shining, and the movie, The Shining, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Because I'm so sensitive to spoilers, we're also going to drop in one of us in just a moment. If there's any extra things that we end up talking about in the course of this, we're just going to give you a little heads up, just so that you know that you might want to skip various parts of it, because we talk about season two of Heroes or something, and you're just holding out to watch that because you love stories with great endings. Right. Oh, sorry, random drive-by on Heroes, terribly oh, fair. Um, yeah, so topical, fair. topical, really. I mean, it's not quite the low-hanging fruit that Lost is, but, you know, it's not too far either. Hello, it's us from the future. Uh, okay, so, spoiler warnings. We very briefly discuss uh, a couple of elements of Doctor Sleep, uh, the sequel to The Shining. We talk about the... 1839 short story by Graham Poe, The Fall of the House of Usher, and there is the briefest mention of something from Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, an aspect of its adaptation to film. We'd also like to take this opportunity to add a couple of content warnings. During the course of the podcast, we do repeatedly discuss themes of domestic violence and child abuse. While these discussions are repeated, we do not discuss them graphically. We also occasionally bring up uh, the topic of racial terrorism and lynching. This is done briefly and, again, is not done graphically. We'd also like to take a brief moment to apologize for the length of this first episode. We're still getting the hang of exactly how long a podcast is and how much you can edit down. We promise the next episode will be a little bit shorter than this one. Stick with us. And back to past us. Welcome back! Now that the spoiler warnings are out of the way, let's get into the main segment. So we'll start our main segment with a quick summary of the story of The Shining. For those who are unfamiliar and don't care about spoilers, or people who maybe are familiar but it's been a while since they read the book or saw the movie. I'm assuming most people have at some point seen The Shining or know enough about it, but we're going to usually give a summary of things in case we're talking about something more obscure, so we'll, we'll stay true to form and do that here today. The Shining is about a really well-adjusted family who are going to be caretakers of a hotel in the Colorado Rockies for the winter while it's completely closed down and isolated by snow. The child of the family has an ability called The Shining, which allows him to have premonitions of the future and hold psychic conversations with people at long distances and to read their minds, which isn't in any way creepy, but I suppose that's the point, really. But he's also... How old is he? I think he's five in the book. Yeah. Too young to do a good movie adaptation. Uh, no, wait, hang on, I shouldn't say that already. <laughs> a little harsh. We'll, we'll take that out. A little while after they get snowed in, shit starts to go down, and 
ghosts start appearing in the hotel and tormenting the family, primarily the father figure, Jack Torrance, who you'll probably just think of as Jack Nicholson if you've ever seen any sort of promotional material for the film. Basically, over the course of the book, the hotel really tries to get the dad to kill his family. Yeah. That's sort of the book. Yeah. It's a book about an evil fucking hotel. Mm-hmm. We should also put in the warning that we're going to swear occasionally in this podcast because I can't help myself, and we were going to do that up top, but forgot. <laughs> Alright, so that is what the story is in The Shining. I like the way that you got me to do the summary. Realized that I was just going to waste a lot of time on the summary and then did the summary for me. Teamwork. Teamwork, teamwork. It's okay. important. Okay, right. let's go with that. So in order to prepare for this conversation slash podcast, I actually read The Shining a week ago. I had not read it or read any Stephen King. And then we watched the Stanley Kubrick film together and took some notes. I believe Mark also did a little bit of reviewing and research about the book because it had been a while. Yeah, I, I read the book like 10 years ago and then had well, I've watched the film a couple of times before and then I sat down and rewatched the film with you. And then I sat down and read a load of plot summaries to remind myself. So anyway, that's what we did to get ready for this. Let's actually talk about the things that we noticed in this book and what it says about people and stories. I'll start with a really big general thing, which is wanting to look at how the hotel itself becomes a character within the story mm-hmm. in a progressively literal sense throughout the book. It certainly has a lot of agency and it gets a lot of characterization throughout the book with a lot of Danny being creeped out by it, being that, like, I believe he, like, sort of sees the boiler as being alive fairly early on in the book. Well, Danny doesn't necessarily see it as a lie fairly early in the book, but the language used to describe it is anthropomorphizing, like, from the get-go. So the the caretaker guy, when he's describing the boiler, constantly refers to it as she. He's like, she creeps over and over, and that's repetitive, and that's also something that echoes in Jack Torrance's thoughts about the boiler, that she creeps. Which is interesting when you see, like, there are other, like, feminine personified horrors that also creep in the hotel yes but but yeah so i get, de- definitely can see that but the boiler is like one aspect of the hotel not necessarily i don't think the malevolent presence that you're talking about sure but i do know what you're talking about especially at the end when the hotel's malevolent pre- presence animates jack torrance's broken body and has a conversation with danny in the climactic scene of the book yeah in a like horror mangled way and I mean, I think that it is intended to be fairly literal. I went back and reread the last few pages of the book. After the hotel has exploded because of the boiler, Danny looks back to it and maybe sees a shadow disappearing from the hotel mm-hmm. as that malevolent presence that's there. Yeah, like an actual spirit leaves the area. Yeah. So, I mean, taking it from being a creepy hotel that is filled with spirits to being a villainous hotel that perhaps uses those spirits in a sort of mastermindy, puppety way. It seems to have, like, fed on all of the horror and, like, every bad thing that ever happened, every dysfunctional person that ever stayed there in a sort of poltergeisty way, but also in a more literal, like, ghost-eating and absorbing to gain power kind of a way, like, is definitely the implication I got, where, like, the hotel is itself this sort of spiritual Frankenstein's monster of all of the ghosts of the victims 
that happened to die in that hotel, the emotional trauma that had taken place. That in itself just becomes this sort of manifestation of resentment and anger and fear. So yeah, I definitely see what you mean. While we're talking about the anthropomorphizing of the hotel and like specifically how important the boiler is to the resolution of the story. Mm -hmm. It brings me to one of my notes under like storytelling elements. And obviously we've had Chekhov's boiler from the very beginning of the book. <laughs> uh -huh. Like, you know, it's very much established at the beginning as this almost a literal time bomb. I wonder how many people. Okay. For those not familiar with, or not who don't immediately get what I'm saying there about like Chekhov's boiler, a common literary device is what's known as like the Chekhov's gun is when like you've presented a gun on the mantelpiece or something like in an early scene where it's not necessarily relevant but it kind of tips the audience off that you know someone's gonna get shot later or this it will be important it wouldn't be there unless it was going to be relevant down the line and the way that the boiler is talked about at the beginning of the story makes it very clear in that same sort of way that that's going to be something to watch throughout the progression of the story. So that's check out the spoiler. It's established right at the beginning that that's something that threatens the whole family and also the integrity of the hotel as it's itself as a character. Yeah. And I think that it does quite a lot to generate that tension within the story because within the first chunk of the book, every so often someone's going down and checking on the boiler. Twice a day, like every morning and every night. And then at some point that stops happening and it's not really mentioned or referred back to, but you just sort of like start noticing that something's missing. And then as it gets on and like, I think it's Danny that eventually like points out to this sort of hotel personified is like, oh, you know what you forgot? Mm -hmm. Well, and it's interesting. As five-year-olds are want to do. Yeah, well, because earlier in the story, when like as part of the illustration of the ongoing derangement of Jack Torrance, he realizes that he hasn't depressed the pressure on the boiler in a while and he mm -hmm. freaks out and he's like, oh, you know, crap, like, and he, he hears that echo of what the handyman of the hotel had said, of she creeps, your family will go straight to the moon or whatever, and goes down and has to depress the boiler when it is too high and like beyond the point that he knows is safe and burns his hands in the process, like blisters his skin in relieving the pressure. And it's a, it's a very, it's a close call, you know, that really reminds you if you had forgotten that, no, this is really important and really dangerous and could explode this whole place any minute. Yeah. But yeah, so I thought that the Chekhov's gun, Chekhov's boiler was uh, really well used in, in the book. And it's just part of a larger pattern of foreshadowing, though, honestly, uh, particularly through Danny's gift. As far as I can tell, the main point of Danny being psychic, having The Shining, was entirely for the audience. Danny is the, is the audience member in the theater of a horror movie, the person who sees the gang decide to split up and is like, no, you idiots, like, what are you doing? Or who, who wants people to make a good choice but is powerless to actually influence their choices. Yeah. And because of that, his insights provide all the foreshadowing for the entire novel. Yeah, because he's got, he, like, when they have that initial tour, there's multiple times that he, like, feels uncomfortable about something or, like, thinks he might see something. Like the topiary hedges that people who have only seen the film were replaced by a hedge maze that wasn't as good. But, like, the topiary animals that he, like, keeps thinking he sees moving and things like that. And it all sort of sets it up for that later part. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I shouldn't say all the foreshadowing is done through his gift because other things are mentioned by other characters as like things that other people had mentioned about the Overlook that of course then become relevant. Like Dick Halloran talks about the maid who saw um, a dead woman in room 217 in the book and it was changed to 237 in the movie. But well, not that, all of it's through Danny. That sort of leads into one of the other things that I wanted to talk about. And this is perhaps a slightly half-formed theory, and I'm not sure how Dick Halloran plays into it as such, but is this sort of idea of, like, there being wisdom in the youth, in the, the one person in the book that seems to see everything and understand everything is this five-year-old child who seems largely untouched by the world. While Dick Halloran, the caretaker, has the shining as well. The cook. The cook, yes, the head chef. Like, has this shining ability... He's, I think it's one of those things where Danny is more powerful with it. Mm -hmm. I think that, I want to say that he's surprised that Danny can reach out over such a distance when Mm -hmm. he does later in the book. Mm -hmm. And he's potentially wrong because he says that when Danny's like worried about what might be in room 217 because he's had a premonition about it. Mm -hmm. And Dick Halloran's like, there's something in there. I don't think it can hurt you. I think it's just like a picture in the book. Mm -hmm. Like, you can see it because you have The Shining, but it can't really interact with you. Which turns out to be mildly wrong. Yeah. Um, Well, and it does seem to be that the ability to interact is dependent on the strength of your ability with the supernatural and right. so like the like the maid who could see the thing in room 237 also had a little bit of the shining just a tiny bit yeah well and i mean again correct me if i'm wrong but i think that there is something in the book that says that like it's because danny has such a strong ability in the shining mm-hmm. that it sort of amps up the power and i think that that's why the overlook wants to take control of him but can't and ends up going after jack instead but wants jack to kill Wendy but bring Danny to the Overlook. Well they it, it wants him to kill Danny because it the over the Overlook seems to be able to absorb the people that die there. Mm. And it wants Danny's ability and his psychic strength. And it seems like the shining is a double edged sword in that the strength of your ability is also the strength of other things ability to interact with you and affect you like he's walking in two worlds the level of his ability is like how substantial he is in the other place and so dick halloran is like in the other place but in a i guess sort of a misty way where like it can't really grab him he's not in strong enough contact but danny is tangible to the overlook in that psychic way because he's so powerful and he can influence it more, which is why he's more of a threat, but also more of a lure. But he wants Danny to die in the Overlook so that he can absorb him and, and become more powerful and more capable of affecting other people through his gifts. Yeah. It does seem as though, like, I don't know whether it's intended to just be Danny is so strong that the Overlook can't get him, or whether there is some sort of, like, so strong in his ability of The Shining, or whether, like, there's some element to which his youth, A, enables him to see so much that even even more than, like, Dick Halloran can, but also protects him in some ways from it, because it's Jack, not Wendy, that gets possessed by the mm-hmm. Overlook, because Jack is dealing with alcoholism and anger issues, and it seems to have, like, that seems to make him vulnerable to the power of the Overlook. 
Well, I think there's there's a, a subtext of purity and corruption there. Yeah. Part of why the Overlook can't get Danny directly is because Danny hasn't accepted corrupt influences into his mind. He has not been corrupted by the world yet, and so it can't touch him. But Jack has been corrupted in a lot of ways, or at least like in sort of the world of this book and like the weird binary that it creates. Because I do want to get into some stuff about intergenerational trauma and dysfunctional thinking there, but... Sounds um, cheery. Oh yeah, I'm sure it'll be a real good time. But there's some interesting places where consent plays into that, where like the hotel is manipulating Jack into agreeing with it mm. and manipulating the way that he thinks, like the, the thoughts he dwells on in particular. Sort of gaslighting? Gaslighting, and all, but really playing on some deeply entrenched dysfunctional ways of thinking to get him to dwell on, on his most negative conclusions, his most negative perceptions. So that it can kind of twist him to its own ends. Whereas Danny is five and he loves his parents and his parents love him, even though his father did in a, you know, alcoholic rage, break his arm one time. Like he still loves his parents and he still views them as good influences in his life and doesn't hate them. Yeah, well, and then, has then, not so. absorbed those kinds of dysfunctional thought processes that Jack Torrance absorbed as a way to survive in the world he was in. Which is a similar world in which his father was beating him, I want to say? Yeah. yeah. I mean, Danny has a premonition of being attacked by his father, and then eventually is attacked by his father. Mm -hmm. But even through all that, when the Overlook is pressuring him, he's able to call out and be like, no, you're my dad, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I still have affection which is able to snap Jack out of his being mm -hmm. possessed by the overlook the, long long enough to Right. The pure love of the child yeah. is able to disrupt those dysfunctional thought processes. Which I feel like might be a little bit of a trope at this point. It so. is at this point, but it mean but the book was written in what, nineteen seventy seven. It may not have been as established of a trope at that point. I'm uh, sure I'm, it... I'm sitting here wondering like how far back I could trace it. I didn't do the research on this. I'm wondering whether there's like a pure love of the child Helping well, with stuff in like Shakespeare. I think it comes up in actually like fairy tales and stuff. I mean, it's yeah. it. I think it is part of like larger cultural myths. Yeah, actually, but... I mean, when you talked about the whole purity corruption mm -hmm. thing, I mean, that's certainly the like fairy tale, like the heart of gold, pure innocence. You know, Danny can feel a pea under seven mm -hmm. mattresses type thing. Yeah, exactly. I don't mean to call Danny a princess, but um... <laughs> but I know what you mean. Yeah. But yeah, and I think that this whole like idea of corruption versus purity and like when we start talking about the way that the hotel manipulates Jack and tries a little bit to manipulate Wendy and Danny but fails, really does get into a lot of the dysfunctional thinking that really stood out to me as really the center of the horror in the book. There are so many examples of dysfunctional thinking and dysfunctional tropes in the book. I mean, first of all, of course, there's recurring themes of domestic abuse both with Jack's history of his father beating his mom and his siblings and him, like using words and epithets that he then uses when he's being possessed by the Overlook. Like mm. the whole, you'll take your medicine type of recurring stuff. Those are things his father used to say when he was beating the family. And so you get those recurring thoughts, him dwelling on that abuse, 
him rationalizing that abuse and mm-hmm. blaming himself and blaming his mother, blaming the victims in the situation. And you see him doing that under the influence of the hotel, blaming Danny and Wendy for him needing to be violent toward them. And a lot of those dysfunctional patterns that keep cropping up are very tied into toxic masculinity, but also in repressive views on sex and how sex and sensuality is always bad or manipulative or indicative or exploitation of a weakness. Yeah. Like you see Jack use sex in that way. Wendy is trying to make a plan with him of how they can take their son somewhere more safe and escape the hotel. And he seduces her during that conversation to distract her and prevent her from being able to think as logically and hold him accountable to a plan. But then you also see him blaming her and also being manipulated by the hotel with sexuality and like one of the scenes where the, the hotel creates a party scene. And so that's yeah. something that I thought was really interesting where you have this really dysfunctional idea of sex as not just dirty, but as exploitative always. Well, I think also like that scene that you bring up with the party in the film, they replaced that with the scene in 237 where right. it's the woman in the bathtub that may have caused mild trauma to me at a young age. That scene doesn't happen in the book. And instead in the book, you've got the party scene where he starts dancing with a ghost woman and then it's, brought to a halt by like her dress falling down and her being exposed to everyone and her fleeing the phantom party if i remember correctly i don't think that's quite how it ends but it is disrupted and he's very angry and he's angry at her because she's arousing to him and that's something that keeps coming up in our culture of like men being angry at women for the reactions that they have to the women and it's like it's your fault that I am aroused by you and that makes me angry because I'm not in control of myself and that's deeply toxic for a lot of reasons. And you get the whole incel subculture and Yay. Yeah, it's and so I I do see subtexts of that in this book. Talking about like the cycles of abuse and like mm-hmm. how Jack sort of passes on his abuse when he's trying to attack people. Mm-hmm. Then it's calling back to the stuff that his father did. But also tied to the sex thing as well, his treatment of Wendy mm-hmm. and like Wendy's then rationalization of the abuse that she receives from him mm-hmm. is all part of that tied in as well. I think it would just be remiss not to recognize that there's that, not even like from the hotel, but like from the beginning, there's that abusive relationship with her, the way that he talks to her about things like having hurt Danny and things. And I want to say that the student that he assaulted that got him kicked off the teaching mm-hmm. gig, he, he's rationalizing that's her, and then she's having to rationalize his rationalization to be able to continue in that relationship. Yeah. In that sort of way of learning to cope with that. Mm-hmm. While I think that Jack rationalizes as much as he can, and then I think part of what makes him so volatile and a lot of his anger comes from is the fact that he what he can't rationalize easily he just tries to avoid and not confront at all or lie to himself outright about yeah like there's the thing that gets him to stop drinking in the book i don't think is actually attacking danny as it is Mm -hmm. in the film it's that he's driving drunk home at night and like probably hits a kid on a bike and kills them and has like driven on and is like haunted by this image of a bent bike at the side of the road but just like i don't think ever tells wendy about it never like brings it up outside of his own mentality 
which sort of, I think, just sort of keeps those cycles going and helps to make him more vulnerable to the hotel. That's not quite what happens. Uh, his friend is the one driving drunk, but he does think to himself, like, it could just as easily have been him. He's driven uh, drunk lots of times. Yeah. They hit a bike, and they look for hours, and they don't see a body or any signs that there was a rider. Like, it seems like someone just left their bike in the middle of the road, mm. which is very confusing to them, but it does haunt them because it very well could have been a person, a child on a bike, and it's possible that they missed something. I mean, they were drunk when they were looking off the road and, you know, for evidence of it, but it scares both of them, both him and his friend who had been enabling his alcoholism right. off of alcohol and into sobriety. But yeah, he never tells Wendy about it. Danny knows about it through his ability, but hurting his own child isn't what drives him to sobriety. And like that happens the night before Wendy is about to broach the topic of divorce with him. And he's like already decided to quit drinking. And so he asks her, can we talk about this in two weeks? If you still want to talk about it, then mm. I understand. But just like give me like two weeks or whatever. It may be a different amount of time, but it's like a certain amount of time. And she's like, okay. And he stops drinking entirely. And so she starts to develop trust with him again. Yeah. But yeah, it's not the fact that he hurts his child. It's that he might have killed somebody or he, he knows the behaviors he was engaging in could lead to him killing somebody. I think one of the things that you were talking about before in terms of all the rationalization of the abusive behavior and the alcoholism, which I believe his father also was an alcoholic from the descriptions. Yeah. It's like you see this, these patterns of intergenerational trauma where like his father abused his family and he internalized that as part of what it is to be a, the man of the house and a father. And his wife, Wendy also has a toxic relationship with her parents where like her mother is emotionally abusive and in part because of that she is more primed to accept and rationalize being emotionally mistreated in her in her intimate relationships and so that was one of the things that i thought was really pervasive through the whole book was this passing on of trauma down the generations and between families um, yeah. that just was consistent. And you see it in, um, in the, the things that the hotel emphasizes in Jack's mind to get into his head. Yeah. I think Stephen King does a very good job of setting it up as he brings up all of these issues and then manages to fairly well codify them as this is a bad thing. This is a problem in our society with having Jack be flawed by those things. He's not, necessarily bad because of them but they are flaws that lead him to be bad and to be vulnerable to the overlook but then showing that there's still good there at the end and then the overlook getting destroyed it being the symbolic destruction of all of those patterns it's a little bit interesting with where dr sleep takes some of that which for anyone who's not familiar is the sequel to the shining which we're recording this a about a week or two before the film comes out. Maybe in a future episode we'll do Doctor Sleep in the um, film and do our best not to become the Stephen King podcast. Mm -hmm. I have to assume that there's already a Stephen King podcast, for one thing. If we do that, we'll come back and touch on that. But I've taken The Shining as a whole. I think it does a good job of tearing down those ideas. So one thing I kind of want to challenge you on there is you're talking about these 
traumatic experiences and, and patterns, familial patterns, making him do dysfunctional and harmful things. And I want to challenge that because yes, it is very common for people to replicate traumatic patterns, especially those that are um, repeated and parts of their entire upbringing. That's, it's pretty common, but abuse like that doesn't make anyone do anything. And I think that it's really important in the book too, the power of choice, because he chooses to behave in self-interested ways that hurt other people throughout the book. And it constantly brings him problems and it ruins his relationships. It gets him kicked out of of teaching because he is jealous and resentful of a promising student. That's the student he ends up assaulting later. He chooses to drink to excess, etc. And I, I, perhaps I misphrased that. I mean more that like he is a product of his circumstances that have led him into this position where those are the choices that he makes. He was not being set a good example Mm -hmm. and the destruction of the overlook with Jack Torrance along with it mm-hmm. is something that will mean that Danny isn't set that same example. Um, I think what, what sets that means that breaks that cycle is that he chooses not, even when he wants to, and all of the pressures around him are telling him to take out his anger on his child. He chooses to kill himself. That's the choice. Yeah. He makes. Okay. He decides no, if this hotel is going to make me smash the smell into anybody, it will be into me. And he smashes his own face repeatedly and horrifically with the mallet, giving his child time to run and grab his mom and his friend and get out before the place explodes. Yeah. Like, that's the choice that he makes. And this is a man who has experienced intergenerational trauma and who has consoled himself with ideas of his own superiority then putting himself last and i think that's an important choice to to highlight in the book and it really does kind of fly in the face of this whole idea that you know anybody who's abusive has no choice but to replicate those patterns because that's not true just because you have replicated those patterns in the past doesn't mean that you can't recognize how problematic they are and choose to make different choices going forward yeah, that's a good point. I'm just thinking that we did those little introductions where I was like, oh, I've got a background in literature and you know, I've got a background in psychology and social work. And at this point, those are probably somewhat redundant. <laughs> the last thing I'd like to add to the intergenerational thing that I think is very interesting and doesn't come up in the movie is the Tony role hmm. with Danny's imaginary friend that is it explicitly stated in the book or is it just heavily implied that he's talking to his own, uh, sort of effectively a future self? That's what it is explained in the book. Yeah. So it sort of allows for Danny to be in a sort of midpoint on that intergenerational thing where he's sort of got a feedback loop of himself. Right. To A, you know, warn him and say, by the way, some shit went down at the Overlook slash is about to go down at the Overlook. Mm-hmm. but also to just give him a little bit of extra insight there, which I guess probably undercuts that point earlier I made about the whole youth thing. But we'll... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. One of the things I do think is interesting about that is that Tony... Anthony is his middle name, but Anthony is also his grandfather's name, the grandfather who mm. was abusive to Jack. And so one of the things that was interesting to me is I was wondering while I was reading the book, because you don't find out that his middle name is Anthony until almost the end of the book but it's joked about much earlier that oh you know 
ha ha, you know, of course his imaginary friend is named Tony. And so what puzzled me, because you do find out that Anthony is his grandfather's name fairly early on, is that are they trying to imply that this is some like weird psychic presence of his grandfather who seemed to be a terrible person? Because that didn't quite add up, but that's not what it is. So it's interesting that this, he's named his kind of guardian future self after a person who started a lot of the dysfunctional patterns that he's in the process of being victimized by. Well, I mean, you say that he started them. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it could go much further than that, but who at least visited it upon his dad. The interesting thing I think is, the, the Shining in De Calaran's family is fairly... It's certainly implied that it's hereditary because mm-hmm. Dick and his grandmother both shared it and would have conversations without opening their mouths and things. Mm-hmm. But there's no evidence given, I want to say, that anyone in Danny's family has it? Or I totally I... disagree. I think there's a lot of subtextual implication that Jack has The Shining. There are aspects of the book that certainly could be read that way. He, Jack, is uniquely from Danny's perspective able to shield his thoughts a lot of the time Mm. and that might be a read on how repressed he is and how good at self-manipulating he is but there definitely seem to be times when it seems like Jack is mentally pushing back at Danny's attempts to intrude on his thoughts Mm. so I would argue that Jack seems to be similarly gifted not probably not as strong as Danny but that he also seems to have the shining but is so repressed a person that it's all drawn in and I also think that that's somewhat borne out by the effect the hotel has on him because much like Danny he's much more strongly affected by the phantoms in the hotel than other people seem to be which is implied in through other things like by DeCaloran as potentially being a factor of your your having the shining. Does Wendy have much in the way of interaction with any of the ghosts or anything before the climax? Yes. She can hear the party. Okay. The whole family can hear the party, which might be partly the hotel being strengthened by Danny's presence. It's hard to say. But also she sees the manifestation of like the party favors in the hotel and the um oh, in the elevator. In the elevator. Yeah. And things like that. And here's Jack talking to somebody else, which is, I think, Grady, the previous caretaker who killed Mm. his family. So she doesn't interact with it as much. And she doesn't seem to be as aware of some of the unsafe places in the way that Jack and Danny are. Because Jack also gets chased by the topiary. Mm. That doesn't happen to Wendy. And he has that experience with the with the playground. He and Danny both run afoul of some of the same places in the hotel. But Jack is better at lying to himself about, oh, that didn't happen. And I think that's reflected in how shut down he is. But yeah, I think the biggest evidence is the way that sometimes Danny's trying to read his mind. And he seems to get not just the shielding, but an antagonistic pushback from his father in the book. Yeah. Okay. That's fair points. Okay. I've got one more big point on my list. What have you still got? The depiction of the creative mind and creative process. Mm. Um, and a couple other stereotypes that I just kind of wanted to touch on. I don't need to get into it too much. And also the whole wasps thing. Oh yeah. Well, the wasps thing ties into the inherited trauma. I, yeah, yeah. I definitely saw the wasps coming up as a recurring uh, signal for 
context related to abuse and intergenerational patterns. All the times that he's encountering the wasps, he's like dwelling on his history with, with his father and the way that his father was abusive and, and also an alcoholic. And also in a lot of those same thought processes are a lot of trains of thought where victims are being blamed for the abuse that they suffer. Mm. So I thought that was very interesting. Like they just kept coming up together throughout the story. Yeah, it's something that's effectively dormant. But also but... part of someone's nature, like an unavoidable part of what something is, is that they will hurt. But Danny, because of The Shining, does see wasps coming out of it at various points. Is that right? Oh, wasps do come out of it. So Jack thinks he bombed the, the wasp nest in the book. He gets the wasp nest and he's like excited to give it to, to Danny because his dad gave him one that they found at their house. It was like the coolest thing in his room. Mm. Wendy's really unsure. She's like, uh, I don't think that's safe or hygienic. And she's like, it's fine. I had one. It was great. And Danny thinks it's really cool. And then in the middle of the night, some wasps crawl out and sting his hand. Yeah. And it's like several wasps. And... Jack's pissed and is like, I'm going to sue the company, etc. And he takes them out and puts them under a glass bowl. And in the morning when he comes out, like the whole bowl is full of wasps. Like it's not just a few, it's like a whole, but it, like it may as well have been an entirely full nest, but it had seemed empty before. Yeah. So it's that so, thing that seems harmless, but it's yeah. very dangerous. So I'm not sure if it's necessarily as good as for inherited abuse or whether it's just toxic masculinity. <laughs> and Jack's just like, here, Danny, have some toxic masculinity in these, like, oh, it seems so cool, and then, and, and then, then, then it, it turns out that toxic masculinity sucks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it definitely does. But I And think, we should all sue the company. And we should all sue the company, yes. But there's definitely a lot of language around it, and, like, thoughts that accompany the wasps, the scenes that include the wasps, that are very victim-blaming, and, um, like, it's your fault for not paying attention, or it's your mm. fault for being careless, you know, I wasn't thinking and I put my hand where I shouldn't have and, and so it's my fault I got stung. You know, these wasps, wasps are going to sting because they're just, they're wasps. Dads are going to cane their wives at the dinner table because it's just what dads do. Like, there's a, yeah. definitely a false equivalence there, yeah. but those equivalencies are drawn in the book. Yeah. Along with some of those similar toxic stereotypes and tied up with the toxic masculinity is also Almond. I want to touch on that really briefly. Like Almond is the the manager of the hotel who hires mm -hmm. Jack, and the opening of the book is very strongly coding him as gay, and also very strongly implying that Jack and the like manly man handyman guy who tells him about the boiler and all the staff at the hotel like really hate this guy. That he's uptight and arrogant and it's just really the opening, interesting because it's a threat to talk to traditional masculinity. The opening lines of the book are literally, Jack Torrance thought, a vicious little prick. Ullman stood 5'5", five five, and when he moved, it was with the prissy speed that seems to be the exclusive domain of all small, plump men. I mean, it's not Stephen King's finest moment with the coding. We'll let him off on it on the grounds that it was the 70s, and I think he's grown as a person. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and it's not just there. Like, there's definitely implication, like, more explicit implication that he's gay throughout the book. Like, yeah. a lot of characters make comments about that, call him various slurs and things um, in, in describing him or in referring to, to all men. And it just kind of reinforces these ideas of, of Jack Torrance in particularly as being very steeped in toxic masculinity and feeling very threatened by anything that 
counters that, like, these traditional ideas of masculinity. And perhaps I'm being unfair on 1970s Stephen King, as it's very much from Jack Torrance's point of view. And yes. The narrator is not the author. And so exactly. may maybe that is him using... Highlighting. But it is also the opening, and th that narrator is at the bare minimum, assuming that the generic public will be on that character's side for thinking this person is a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of, you know, stereotypes that come up, there's also the whole, like, wise black man stereotype. Yeah. That definitely is a is an important part of this book. And Dick Halloran, he saves the family. Like, he rescues them. He's the reason they're able to get out. But he's the person with the shining, the first one that Danny meets who has the shining and explains to him what it is and is there for him to call. And so there's... And he's very much depicted as this, you know, wise in the ways of the world guy who travels and, like, has a lot of friends and things like that. And it's just, it's that stereotypical wise black man, but he's also, like, a magic black man. And there are some deeply problematic tropes with that. The idea of black people as having magic powers has been a long-standing justification for their oppression by white people. And so I just want to make sure that that is pointed out because I think it's very problematic. I mean, it goes all the way back to like 1932 films like White Zombie, where you're characterizing black people as having like these voodoo powers and stuff. And it's supposed to make white people feel less like the bad guy for oppressing this other group of people. Yeah. Um, and I also want to say that with the possible exception of Dick's grandmother, I think he's the only non-white character in the book. He's certainly the only non-white character of importance in the book. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, like a lot of the other characters are older ghosts. Yeah. In a rich hotel, but like you could certainly have added an additional character. Instead. But even aside from that, like not only is he the wise magic black man, but also he's the victim of entrenched racism, and like the hotel threatens to lynch him, and and also the n word is used toward him repeatedly by the hotel, by Jack Torrance possessed by the hotel, and it's very much highlighting the way that entrenched racism and like lynching is a form of terrorism and, and social engineering to like keep black people in line and, yeah and i and i i just want to make sure that that was something that we did not forget to mention because it really stood out to me in our current context of really seeing that highlighted uh or people really starting to think about that i think at least a little bit more obviously like there's the memorial to peace and justice in Montgomery, the memorial to victims of lynching and right, the yes. museum about lynching as terrorism and a form of social engineering to, to keep particularly black people down. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just didn't want to not say anything about that. Although obviously we're not the best people to talk about this as we are both white people and, you know, obviously can't really engage with it in the fullness of it. But yes, I think it's important to acknowledge. Mm hmm uh, another thing I definitely wanted to acknowledge is that in terms of more storytelling elements, but also tying back into the repressive views on sex, Stephen King keeps using vulgarity, particularly about sex, to generate discomfort in the reader in a lot of instances. Mm. And I thought that that was very interesting in terms of setting certain tones and just making you uncomfortable. It's kind of like how in horror movies they use like the bees noise or whatever. It's like, like a little yeah. cheap. Yeah, it's a little cheap, but it's effective. And it's like, oh, you've used those gross terms and, like, you've made me feel gross as a reader. Yeah. I sometimes wonder whether there's people out there who don't find that gross. 
I mean, there's theoretically people who, people who find it hot and stuff, but... Like, there are people who are like, oh, it's locker room talk. Yeah, let's not even get into that. One thing I want to talk about is the fact that it's interesting because King writes in such semi-autobiographical pieces, especially at this point oh, in his career. Process. He's also fairly openly struggled with alcoholism and stuff. There's The more of his books that you read, the more that you come across, like, there's quite a lot of characters who are writers and who have, you know, experience with Alcoholics Anonymous for some reason. Or write what you know. Jack Torrance dealing with alcoholism and dealing with this like drive to try and semi-workaholic and kind of like losing his mind over his writing uh-huh. to varying degrees is interesting for how Stephen King is confronting his own demons. I didn't necessarily mean to be quite so heavy-handed as to say demons there, but never mind. There was a thing I was reading where he's talking about the book and his own experiences he was saying that like any confession tends to be like a slightly veiled confession i don't have the quote in front of me so i'm paraphrasing and he's specifically talking about like the relationship to danny how he's the father of two kids and like you do occasionally get a bit frustrated with them not not in an abusive way but like you get that frustration level of why can't you just go to bed sort Mm -hmm. of level of things that being a part of it i think when you put in some of the other things that he's dealt with it's interesting as like him turning those into catalysts for horror mm-hmm. there's obviously very overtly in the book the hotel is literally possessed there are definitely spirits there i think it's potentially a little bit more open in the film version but we can get to that as like mental illness issues with addiction and such mm-hmm. becoming the horror in the film or mm-hmm. the, in the book damn it <laughs> And at the risk of getting, like, full literature nerd on you, how familiar are you with Full Hands of Usher? I think I read it a long time ago. I don't really remember. Okay, I'll, I'll do a quick recap of it. So in Full of House of Usher, which was written in 1839, it's a unnamed narrator is visiting his friend and his friend's sister. They're both taken ill. Friends called Roderick. Uh, Roderick believes that the house is literally alive and is tied to him. He and his sister are the last in the the house of Usher. Mm -hmm. They're the last of the lineage and believes that like the fate of the house is tied to them. Shortly after like the narrator gets there, the sister dies and the friend is like, we have to entomb her in the house for two weeks immediately because that's, I guess, what you did in 1839. Maybe it's weird. It's a weird story. So this narrator, being a solid friend, goes and helps entomb this guy's sister in the basement of the house. And then, like, for the next week, while his friend continues to be ill, like, a storm starts to brew and eventually weird shrieks and cracking sounds echoing through the house. For which, At which point the friend declares that they're clearly made by his sister, who's still alive, and that he has entombed his sister alive and was aware of this at the time. At which point the door to the room that they're in blasts open when the sister is standing there, who then falls on her brother and they both die. And the narrator flees the house, because the narrator has finally made a good decision, and like turns back and there's this big crack that was running up the house originally that now is splitting in two and the house literally falls in two with the death of the two. There's a lot of things tied there with, especially like if you take out the epilogue chapter, like the last scene in the book is in the final chapter, like they're fleeing the hotel and like Danny looks back and sees the overlook in flames and everything with the death of the overlook spirits and his father. But on top of that, like the half of the house of Russia is right in the wake of like the scientific enlightenment. And it's this sort of interesting little capsule of this move from 
a lot of horror and gothic horror like talking very heavily about demons and spirits and starting to replace some of those more classical horror things with this new scientific information that they're getting. So like... Like psychology? Well, like in the initial scenes, Roderick is acute, uh, has an acute bodily illness and it talks about the mental disorder which oppressed him and it's talking about like the strange malady. So like the sort of tension and horror that's built up is not through, oh yeah, there's demons in this house. It's mm-hmm. built up through oh, there's this weird illness that you know about now, mm-hmm. and that becomes the horror of it all. It's all done very creepily, but really, like, the story of the fall of House of Russia is that these people are dying, mm-hmm. and there's not really much that can be done about it. And the specter of the end of the family line. Right. And, I mean, like, it ties in some more traditional things, like fears of being buried alive, because, mm-hmm. you know, you never know when your brother's going to entomb you in the basement, apparently. They're talking about the illness and, like, there's this conversation about, like, how, oh, there's animal spirits and stuff described as being part of the problem alongside the phrase excessive nervous trepidation, pulling this sort of, like, ah, it's spirits in the blood type lingo, mm-hmm. and this, like, ah, we understand that there's nervous systems that are at fault mm-hmm. and, like, that, you know, we're getting into the point where everyone starts getting diagnosed with hysteria, which is mm-hmm. a very different problem, but... I mean, that may as well be ghosts in the blood. Right. But more applicable to women, apparently. <laughs> it's a really great way to lock your wife up in an attic room and watch as she slowly goes crazy at the wallpaper. Um, That's a different short story. Yeah. Anyway. It's the same error and the same problem. In fact, I have, like, a quote here that's, like, all this sciencey words put in, like, it's description of him being cadaverously wan, but moreover, there was a species of mad hilarity in his eyes and evidently restrained hysteria in his whole demeanour. But he didn't have a uterus, probably. Well, I think that they refined down the definition of hysteria to only apply to troublesome wives later. Hmm. But it's, like, not only is there this callback to the, the building being tied to the people, but, like, this sort of combination of mental illness and spirits being that horror there. And when I was going through some of my old notes to pull this, I came across this quote that I just found kind of entertaining, talking about the house being tied to the illness. Someone called Tamari Trishvili says, like, the tale presents a multi-layered allegory of the discorded mind in which the house itself may be understood as the domain of unreason, its physical collapse analogizing the phys- psychological disintegration of Roderick Usher. I mean, that does definitely sound very applicable to the end of The Shining. Yeah. I want to go back to one of the things I forgot I hadn't talked about from my notes, which was the depiction of the creative mind and the creative process in The Shining. Sure. So you were talking about Stephen King and the autobiographical nature of some of the depictions of being a writer in The Shining. And I I did think it was very interesting that that depiction does call up that stereotype of writers as addicted Mm. or prone to addiction, also prone to suicidality because Jack Torrance does have a history of contemplating suicide that Danny is aware of. He doesn't know what it means, but he remembers seeing suicide in his father's mind and knowing that it was a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And also, like, narcissism is a stereotype about writers that you definitely see in Jack Torrance. And I think that's interesting because you're talking about, you know, this is Stephen King in a lot of ways writing what he knows, but it's also Stephen King writing about what people think authors are or writers are. I think there's an interesting element of, like, I said, like, confronting it earlier, mm-hmm. but, like, I think that there might be an element of self-loathing 
in it. Oh, like, Jack Torrance definitely is self-loathing. Well, I mean, it being like Stephen King's own self-loathing manifesting mm-hmm. itself as Jack mm-hmm. Torrance's worst traits. And like, I, I, he worries that he is these things. Sure, and I definitely, and I think that ties in a lot with what you were talking about with the most terrifying impulses as a parent. Some of the most terrifying moments people have is when they realize the damage they're capable of doing and, like, negative and destructive impulses that they have toward their children in moments of frustration and exhaustion, you know, things like postpartum depression, where like people want to, or in some cases actually do harm or or kill their children. Those are some of the deepest specters that people have, you know, are in the mirror in that way. But so I think it's interesting that he is having this main character who's not terribly relatable, who is relatable, not terribly likable, I should say. That's fair who is in many cases, in many ways, uh, exemplifying stereotypes, negative stereotypes about writing, but also how realistic the creative process is portrayed in it. Because you're seeing points where the author or the artist, I mean, this isn't just true of writing, but of any creative endeavor where everything looks like shit. You're, you, you hit these critical patches where you're not satisfied with anything, not happy with anything, think everything that you've done is derivative or terrible or worthless. But then there's also points of flow that are shown where like things are moving and you're happy with it and you can see where you were going and the promise in the work that you're making. And so I thought that it was interesting that he's simultaneously showing the creative mind, that he's showing the creative mind so harshly, but showing the creative process somewhat even-handedly. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, as a person who writes and prioritizes creative endeavors, like, how would you, what are your thoughts on that? It's very tempting to conflate Jack Torrance, the character, with that creative process. And I think the problem that you might run into there is that I think that the reason that he's showing an even-handed view of the creative process is that he's showing his view of the creative process, Mm -hmm. which I think rings fairly true. Sometimes you're up and sometimes you're oh so down, as you say, speaking from experience. But then I think that the reason that, I mean, I'm doing a whole lot to like try and work out the author's intent here, which it is what you read into it. But I think that like, I think he can present a very realistic view of the creative process while presenting a creative figure that perhaps might conform to some stereotypes mm-hmm. and some of that might be intentional and some of it might be that he's putting his own experiences into there i know mm-hmm. stephen king has not always been a happy man he struggled with various things so i think that it might be perhaps erroneous to try and like conflate those two things and try and reconcile them when i think that they're probably coming from different places but it's an interesting point okay so i think at this point We've gone over everything I wanted to talk about, although I did want to point out there's also a good stereotypes of mother. I think the whole, oh, moms have a little bit of the shining is getting into some of those like supposedly good stereotypes of women as mothers. And But I mean, we could talk about that forever. But I do want to, it's similar, similar to some of the issues with race that I wanted to point out. Yeah. I just want to definitely point that out too. Because when I heard that, when I saw that, I was like, kind of bullshit like yeah it that that seems to be trying to put support into this idea that women are inherently better caregivers than dads because it's not like all parents have the shining it's i think all moms have a little bit of the shining yeah no that's just a justification for men to not do equal parts of child raising and that's bullshit so anyway 
Alright, that's all I'm going to say on that. We could talk about it forever. Definitely some problematic stereotypes, I agree. I think but, we've done all the talking about the book that we really Yeah, I, I, I think that we do. have talked about the book, all that we wanted, and then a little bit more on top of that. Mm -hmm. um, and it'll be a fun editing process for one of us, or both of us, I don't know. We'll work that detail out later. So yeah, the movie. Oh, the movie. So I saw the movie before I read the book, a good, good many years ago. And I think I saw it a couple of times, and then I think I went and read the book. Charlotte and her, I heavily recommended that she read the book first, because I was interested to see how it went if you went the other way. So for a good many years after I'd read the book, in fact until about two days ago, I would often say the Stanley Kubrick film is a really good movie, but it could have been a better movie if it had you know, worked with more of what the book gave it. I think that there's a lot of character development and like aspects of the story that I'm sure we'll get into in a moment that it just ignores, and it, I think there's a really good movie to be made of The Shining. Having rewatched it a couple of days ago, I've revised my thing to say the book is really good and could be a great movie, and the Stanley Kubrick film is, is just a bad film. Yeah, I wasn't a fan either, for several reasons. We should acknowledge it is a cult classic, and if you do love it and you were scared of it at a young age and it holds a special place in your heart, then, you know, yeah. you're, you're entitled to that opinion. Yeah. Uh, Far be it from us to ruin something you enjoy. I mean, I, I definitely believe in letting people enjoy things. We are, having said that, going to sit here and nitpick this for a few minutes. Yeah, <laughs> the, if you're, if you really don't want to hear us kind of tear it apart you might want to skip to closer to the end of this podcast because i think the next several minutes are going to be us complaining and dunking on the movie we we should say that i think that there are some really good scenes in the movie sure i really enjoy the way that they did the scenes in the bar with the sort of phantom party going on mm -hmm. i think the conversations with that bartender and the way that the backgrounds of those scenes progress is really well done a lot of those were some of the most faithfully adapted parts of the movie yeah to be fair which is probably why you like them so much and the like i think the conversations with the bartender are very good and then like and the conversations with grady are very faithful. i think yeah the conversation with grady in the restroom and in the pantry. And in the pantry, yes. Those are all done very well. I guess that having the restroom be bright red was a cinematic... Cin Cinematographic yeah. choice. Cinematographic choice. And, like, I, I can appreciate it as an artistic choice. It might not be the one I would make today if I were to make a movie, but, like, I think it is a very bold choice. And I don't have a problem with that. I think it red and white together are a historic combination, or a historic but classic combination to evoke ideas of blood and bone and so i think that works well there is that especially because it's porcelain like it's white ceramic like it's it's very cross-section of a limb type of color scheme and for a brief side note charlin was not aware until seeing that film that there are urinals that go all the way down to the floor and she was, was very concerned by it i was not yeah i i don't see how you avoid splash problems with that yeah yeah urinals are kind of bullshit was there anything else that was done really well in the film um i mean the atmospheric noise like the the music a lot of the tension building devices to create atmosphere i think was done really effectively in the movie that's fair i think that there was one point when they used the cheap b sound that i judged them just a little bit for well sure but they also used the recurring like boiler whistling noise to good effect which is interesting considering they cut that whole p plot line out of the movie but they still use it for attention building and maybe as a bit of a wink to the people who've read the book i don't know i also thought it was really weird that they did still have a scene where shelly duvall is checking the boilers like, it seems so strange to call attention to the boiler that isn't used. Again, I think um, it's a wink. And to have her doing it rather than Jack. 
Mm-hmm. And what I also want to clarify, while we're about to complain about this movie, it would be very easy to complain and say, oh, it's not true to the book, this, that, and the other. And that's not the problem I have with it. No, like, those there are the complaints we have. There are some big changes that they make that I fully understand, especially because they were making the film in 1980. They remove the topiary animal figures and, that move and replace them with a hedge maze that could be a scene for a final chase. Fully understand it. Don't think that was a mistake. I quite like the hedge maze scenes and trying to do animated hedge, hedge animals in 1980 would have either taken all their budget and or looked terrible. It would have been campy as hell and it would have yeah. undercut the scariness of it. Yeah. Um, just think about how some of the things contemporary to that, and it, it wouldn't have worked. <clears throat> cho- choosing to have Jack die in a way that didn't require the entire hotel to blow up. That I, I do understand not blowing the entire hotel apart. Again, budgetary constraints and special effects. I get that. That being said. That being said, we had a lot of problems while we watched this movie. Some are like little silly things that we could totally dunk on. Like the incredibly long opening and the font that they use for the credits at the beginning. That's so you, bad. But You have to understand that this hotel is far away. And if you don't see 10 minutes of them driving... With no speech, no nothing, just outside shots of a car on a road, how will you understand how far away it is, Charlotte? Yeah. So, I mean, (laughs) there's definitely, we definitely have some uh, more trivial complaints like that. But I have some things that I've, like, definitely listed as unforgivable for me. And do we want to start with the with that, or do we want to start with the silly bullshit? Um, let, let's go with the unforgivable, and then we'll we'll amp down instead. Okay, of, so. all right. So while we do have a lot of like little more trivial things that we thought were not great ideas, there are definitely some like bigger picture things that I personally found unforgivable. First of all, there's like no character development for anybody over the course of this movie. Nobody grows, changes, learns anything interesting from the beginning to the end. Nobody. Wendy, in particular, as a character, gets completely shafted. She has no interiority, no motivations that are clear beyond, like, just obviously wanting to protect her child, but, like, you don't really get a sense of who she is as a person, why she married Jack, why she loves him. She's so flat. I feel so bad for Shelley Duvall because they just really don't give her anything. And also, like, just to add on to the feeling bad for Shelley Duvall, I think this is widely known, but, like, Stanley Kubrick, like, obviously a big fan of torturing people. Malcolm McDowell and Clockwork Orange apparently was thoroughly tortured. But, like, he, he really messed up Shelley Duvall to the point that, like, she has said she will never be in the same room as him again. That movie kind of ruined her life, as far as I can tell. Like, I don't think she really did any acting again. I think that she's mostly just spent the rest of her life recovering. Yeah. So, Wendy in the books is a much stronger character. I mean, in the movie, obviously, she is somewhat resilient. She is able to be somewhat resourceful, grabbing things to protect herself eventually escaping, uh, you know, getting Danny out of the hotel. But, like, you don't really get any sense of her life or her intelligence or anything in the movie. The other unforgivable thing to me is they killed Dick Halloran in the movie, and there's just no reason for that. And they don't even make it a good death. Like, he just, he becomes a snowcat delivery system. Yeah. He turns up, he walks in the door, is like, hey, anyone here? And then just receives an X to the chest, and, and, and that's it. There's no, like final moments, no words of wisdom, just, oh, and, and now he's dead and will, like, use his body as a quick shock moment later for Danny or... Yeah, it's terrible. Or like, Wendy, I forget which it one. It is 
a, a bad example of the, you know, the black guy dying, like, <laughs> trope. Also, it's just... And he's also such an interesting character. Like, even in the movie, they go to some lengths to give him a little bit of dimension and, like, show him as a, a more rounded person where, he, you know, you see some of his interactions with other people and, like, that he's a nice guy who seems to genuinely connect with people. And then he just gets an axe to the chest. And, like, that doesn't happen in the book. And not only does it not happen, but he's an important part of Danny and Wendy being able to move on from this trauma at, at the end of the book. Yeah. There's not really a good reason to do that in the movie. As you say, it completely reduces his contribution to the story. Did you have anything to say about that? I mean, I had like a, another edit to the Dick Halloran character that really upset me, which is more just from like a sloppy script writing aspect. Oh, is the, yeah. Like, they take out the, earlier we mentioned the, like, he tells Danny that, like, oh, you know, you know room 237's got something bad in it, you shouldn't go in there, but, like, they're just, like, pictures in a book, they can't hurt you, I think. Mm -hmm. And instead, like, he doesn't say that and is, like, just... Don't go in there. Yeah, it's like, room 237, there's nothing in there, like, you mm -hmm. shouldn't go in there. But there's nothing in there that you shouldn't go in there. Like it, it was kind of like the "Did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire" thing in the yeah. in uh, in the Harry Potter movie uh, Goblet of Fire. The the shift in tone. It went from for kind of paternal to yeah. just like angry paternal. I guess. Yeah, which which is very countered. Like it sort of defeats the point of the the Calrissian character right. because he's supposed to be a healthier masculine force in Danny's life where he's providing guidance in a nurturing and non-judgmental way that's very different from what Jack does. And so it's just, it's not in line with what else you see of the character for him to be like, don't go in there. You know, what he does say is you should avoid that place and certain other places that I know have stuff going on, right. but he does it in a gentle way. Right, but then they still leave in a reference later in the movie to, like, uh, either Tony or... Um, I, I think it's technically Tony talking to the line of it, they're like pictures in a book. Mm -hmm. So they take away that warning from Halloran and make it kind of an out-of-nowhere comment from Danny. Yeah. And then because of the way that it's shot and the way that you don't get quite as much information on, like, what they can do as far as back and forth... Like, like when mentally the communication between Dick Halloran and Danny. Yeah, like you get like Dick asks him if he wants some ice cream, and that's the only communication the two have. But then when Danny calls for help to Dick, it's a long scene, and without any background of the book, it's a very confusing scene. Definitely, I agree. There's a lot of things that happen in the movie that don't make a whole lot of sense unless you've read the book, and that's also true in terms of like trying to relate to the characters at all because as I was complaining before like there's no character development but there's also no real exploration of like who these people are or like what's important to them there's no warmth from anybody in the movie and so it makes it hard to care about the characters in the film it's like yeah. why do I care about Wendy she's just like so detached the whole time she's detached or she's freaking out and like that's it in the movie Danny is also just like very aloof and like disconnected through the entire movie like you don't get any sense one of the most compelling things about the characters in the books is how much they care about each other 
and how simultaneously important to them and painful for them their relationships with each other are. Right. But you don't get any of that in the movie because the characters themselves aren't developed very well. Right. And I think a really good example of that is that in the book, Jack's reason for wanting to go to the Overlook is that he wants to work on his play and he wants to work on his relationships with his family because they almost got divorced. Da, da, mm-hmm. da, da. And in the movie... He just wants to write his damn play, and mm-hmm. he's just kind of a shithead to mm-hmm. yeah, Wendy no, from the game. He's completely get-go. an asshole the entire movie, and so, like, you don't like him at all. In the book, he loves his son, they play together. Wendy's a little jealous of how close they are. Like, Danny's always wanting his dad to, like, read him stories and stuff. And it tells you a lot more about who they are and why they care about each other and, like, why they're even a family. Right. Um, but you don't get any of that in the movie. And it, it, it makes it hard to believe that there's any reason for them to even want to spend several months with him in a hotel right. isolated from the world. And I mean, like, there is a point at which they consider leaving, which yeah. would have been the right choice. But, like, also, in the book, like, Danny's, well, no, I think this is really important to Dad and we should stay and be supportive mm-hmm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas... In the book, Jack is the one who's like, this is so important and you're trying to fuck up my life. Or, if you believe the TV edit we watched, foul up my oh, life. Oh, you mean in the movie, he's like that. You, yeah. You said book and movie backwards. Oh. Ah! In the book... We'll fix it in post and it'll be as yeah. good as the sound edits on the movie, though. In the book, Danny is like, oh, we don't... If we leave, it'll mess things up for Dad and, you know, because he cares about his father and... He knows his dad's worried about the future if he loses this job. And so, but yeah, in the movie, it's just Jack who's just like, you ever thought about what your decisions are doing to me? And it's just like, oh my God. I don't think this is the reason, but I'm going to put it out there. I, I, I guess it's a devil's advocate sort of thing. It's possible some of the changes that are made are because they had to have a child actor for it. And perhaps Danny Lloyd's acting ability was a bit of a limitation in places. I don't think that's a great excuse. Like, for a lack of showing, like, the warmth in the relationship between them, or...? Like, limiting what you could get away with from the scripting. Mm. But, I mean, I think that they could have done a lot by just simply aging Danny up for the film. To get a, no offense to Danny Lloyd's vast acting credits and the two things that he ever appeared in. It's just not nice to make fun of a kid, but... But, like, but, I mean, the thing is that they do cast... I I guess he's... I don't know how old he is, but he's not in a position where he can do much. And, like, it really... The scenes with Dick Halloran where he's talking to him, the actor playing Dick Halloran is clearly a great actor, but it's just kind of difficult when... Mm -hmm. Whether by direction or whether by why he, like, whatever the reason, like, the kid isn't giving him much to work with. Sure, there is no, there's no rapport there. But even if it wasn't a direct observation of, like, you know, him and Jack talking or anything, like, you could still show rather than tell that they had a relationship. You could, there could be, instead of that long intro of them driving up the friggin' mountainside, like, there could have been some, like, montage of, times when they with they, them as a family you know sometimes where they were happy where like wendy is making dinner and like they're laughing or like jack and danny are playing and wendy is wistfully watching out the window or like offers to join them and they're like oh no we're fine and she's like okay or something yeah. there there are things that there are choices you could make that would not necessarily involve strong acting showings from the yeah. child actor or even like lines That could just have been establishing scenes that could really carry forward this idea that 
Danny really loves his dad, and his dad really loves him. I'm just trying to give Kubrick some credit here, and you're just cutting it out from underneath it. I'm sorry, uh, but yeah. I... But with taking out so much of the background, the more depth on, like, Jack's issues with anger and alcoholism and, like, his attempts to be a better person, mm-hmm. you get the scene, which is very long, of Wendy explaining how Jack hurts her kid. Mm-hmm. And without all of the, like, no, he really is trying to be better and you get more of it, like, you just get sort of her weak assurances that that's what he's trying to do. And you're like, you're just sitting there going, like, leave. Mm-hmm. Don't go to the hotel. It's a bad idea. You shouldn't be there. Get out of that. I mean, I, I understand cycles of abuse and, like, that leaving mm-hmm. is not easy. But you don't get quite that same connection because it's been taken out. And it's so tempting to go, oh, well, you know, it's a, it's a movie. You know, they can't fit all that into it. But A, like... It's a two hour and 25 minute movie. It's a very long movie. And like, especially for a 1980 movie, that is a long movie. Mm -hmm. And also, I know he's trying to be artistic, but there are so many extremely long shots and extremely long scenes that include so much that, at least in a modern day movie, would be cut out of like, just little bits of like, oh, can I have a seat sort of things and like them walking down corridors that don't need to be there, that you could cut out some of those long, long shots of driving or the three minutes of Dick Halloran lying on a bed with naked lady posters around him. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could add in a lot more substance to make those characters more depth. I mean, with writing, there are times when I've gone, ah, I need to add something in to make this character more relatable. And I build it up in my mind that I'm going to have to go and write, you know, these extra three pages where it's like the character's more... Most often I come down to, I need to add in one sentence, a half a line of dialogue that just explains their point of view a little bit more and the character can change quite a lot from that just because you add in that extra layer. Some fairly short bits about what Jack is doing to try and be a better person. And be a better father and be a better better husband which is a big part of the book. Uh, A three minute scene where instead of watching Dick Halloran lie naked on half naked on a bed you could have a three minute scene of Jack having had issues with alcohol and like saying to Wendy like hey Seriously, give me two weeks. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make a change. Mm-hmm. And like some cut forwards to show that he is making efforts there. And mm-hmm. that, and then suddenly the fact that she's still with him... Makes a little more sense, is a little more understandable. Gives her yeah. more agency. Yeah. And one of the other things that I have on my list of being unforgivable while we're talking about Jack is that I find it unforgivable in the movie that Jack doesn't redeem himself at all in the end. Oh, God. And I think that is tied into the complete lack of character development for anybody in the movie because the whole impact, the entire impact of the climax of the book is that while the Overlook Hotel has been preying on Jack's darkest patterns from his past. The Again, the intergenerational trauma that does not show up in the movie at all, either from Jack's parent side or with Wendy's relationship with her mom that keeps her from staying with her mom during during this period instead of at the over, uh, Overlook, is that the whole movie and the whole book, Jack is falling into the most toxic and negative and abusive patterns that he learned in his childhood from of, of what it means to be a father. And at the end of the book, he realizes it. His child breaks through to him and is like, this isn't my dad. This is the hotel trying to make my dad do the worst things. And that pulls Jack out of it. And it's that connection, which again is never really established well in the movie 
between father and son that pulls Jack to his senses long enough to decide to smash himself in the face repeatedly with a mallet instead of killing his kid. And that choice to be selfless and put his kid's well-being first is the redeeming moment that he has that gives Danny time to grab Halloran and his mom and get the hell out of there. And that doesn't happen in the book or in the movie. In the movie, Jack freezes to death in the attempt to kill his son. Yep. That's what happens. He is frantically attempting to kill his son. Desperately. And freezes to death and dies of exposure. And like... Because his kid is better at navigating mazes. Because his kid is more familiar with the maze than he is. Because he actually went and spent some time with his damn family. Because he... Yeah. And that's interesting because it, it builds that relationship with his mom a little in that they spend time playing together while Jack is writing. Yeah. And because... So it's his relationship with his mom, the familiarity with the maze that he develops with that quality time with his mom that allows him to escape the worst abuses his father is attempting on him. And so it completely changes the end and like any sort of message of the book, like any of that is just completely reversed in the depiction in the movie. I mean, I would say that the plot gets, the plot and the characters get so pet down that the film almost becomes a story of man goes crazy, dies. Maybe I'm being a little bit simplistic, but like The Shining plays barely a role in the movie. You could actually take The Shining out, make it so that they fix the snowcat that's there. It's just a story of cabin fever. Right. Or about a haunted hotel. Mm -hmm. Because the only thing that it makes a difference for is the fact that Danny calls Halloran and the result of that is that Halloran dies after delivering the snowcat. Yeah. They took the central aspect and like the fact that the story is really about Danny mm-hmm. and his relationships with everyone and made it about Jack Nicholson losing his goddamn mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it becomes a completely different story and it loses the centrality of the relationships in that story. Yeah. And just becomes a story of selfishness. Yeah. I think that that's all the, like, unforgivable, like, what they had source material for. Yeah, the big problems with the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I feel that, like, a lot of the dialogue isn't terribly well written. It's not terribly well delivered either, especially at the beginning of the movie. Like, a large parts of the beginning, like the part with the social worker or the doctor who comes to look at Danny, like, very much feels like a bad training video. Like... Videos, it reminded me of videos that I watched as a student in my social work program where it's like showing therapy sessions or like showing examples of good and bad boundaries, basically. Mm -hmm. Like, Like those are the things that it reminded me of. And there are definitely some choices cinematographically that I saw that I felt were really trying to emulate Hitchcock and not quite working or just not being, I mean, not being Hitchcock. You know, it's yeah. just sort of like a wannabe situation. And that might be a little harsh, but I definitely felt like there were some choices being made like that. Yeah. And I mean, again, to sort of play a mild devil's advocate, I did rant about this to someone and they did point out one thing, which is that when Hitchcock was doing his heyday stuff, mm-hmm. he was able to be in command of everything. He was it. Mm-hmm. Whereas when Kubrick's doing his stuff, it's got more to the point where there's a lot of hands on everything and you can't control as much. It's my understanding that Kubrick was a notorious control freak though and did control everything. Yeah. 
Anyway. Trying to give him some credit. It might be a little bit of a low blow. The, like, it, it felt kind of wannabe Hitchcock to me, but it did. That's That was my reaction. Yeah, and I think that that is what a lot of those long, slow shots are about. I think so, too. Um, They're trying to build tension and not always quite working. And a lot of the exposition that comes through conversations is extremely clunky. Mm-hmm. You tend to get, like, a couple of camera angles, one focused on one person, one focused on the other, or, like, one focused on one person and one focused on the two people talking, and there's very little action going on. That first scene with Ullman and the other guy, it's very long. It's giving a lot of important information. It's very exposition fairy. Yeah. And the scene with Danny and Dick when they're having ice cream, Again, it's very long and you could... I don't know so much about the limitations of a 1980s film set, but I feel that they weren't that much considering that like, it wasn't that far away that things like Star Wars were being made. I think it would have made more sense if they had just had the entire conversation be psychic in that showing that they are not talking and just dubbing the voices over. But if they could have been doing anything, like if the conversation had taken place as they were getting ice cream or something... Mm-hmm with maybe little interjections, which, you know, it would have been a little bit more complicated to film, but I think it would have added a lot more dynamic instead of being a very flat, almost line reading. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, so those are some of our issues with the movie that are a little bit more nitpicky. And of course, we did mention the font of the credits. It's you like, did mention the font. It was really bad. Oh, okay. That, yeah, that's, that's what you Yeah, it's just like to. this large sans serif font and like this very bright blue that's like not the same shade as the blue of the sky that it's above but like close enough that it doesn't show up very well but different enough that it just really jars it just and just doing a weird slow crawl yeah it was just a bad choice it's like it would look bad in a powerpoint presentation let alone a feature movie yeah, again, it might be a little bit of a low blow, but it was laughably bad. It, it was. Um, oh, the timeline. Oh, my God. I, uh, oh, while I we forgot were, about this. While we were watching the movie, I uh, kept a list of the timeline from the movie because the movie is interspersed with these black panels with a, a, a timestamp, and it starts with the interview goes to closing day. One month later, Tuesday. And so the nice little, like, what's happening in this scene segments to suddenly Tuesday. Yeah. And get Raul Julia in there. Yeah, so one month later, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Monday, Wednesday, happy days. I'm just kidding. Most of the movie takes place on Wednesday, or at least a good, like, third of it. I don't know. I think it's important to acknowledge that most of the interesting things happen every other day. You have, like, a day of haunting and then a day of rest. and then Yeah, you (laughs) can't get burned out too much on your spectral visitations. Although there is that one day that's just Wendy and Danny playing in the snow while Jack just stares out of a window very angrily. Yeah. It's it's a whole day. Sounds like a great day. Um, But, yeah, so after Wednesday comes 8 a.m., presumably on Thursday, but that's not specified. And then 4 p.m., presumably still on Thursday, and that's, like, the toward the end of the movie. Yeah, the timeline's very weird, and those cards just sort of come out of nowhere and are pretty disruptive, honestly. It feels like the cards were all made by different people who didn't talk to each other about what they were doing. Yeah, but anyway, that just, just it was weird. All right, so was there anything else that we wanted to say about the movie and, like, the adaptation? I, I think that we have been mean enough to dear Stanley Kubrick. All right, so now that I feel like we've gone over everything that really stood out for us in 
this book and the adaptation, I really feel like the big question in this book is where does evil come from? And I, I think I know what the book is trying to say is like the real source of evil, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts first. Okay. Well, as this was your question, and I only found out about it just before we started recording, I've scribbled a few notes down. Next week we'll switch it and you can get to do the suffering of trying to work out an answer to a big question on a spur moment. I mean, I think that we could get into the weeds a little bit, talking about what is evil. I mean, I think that, you know, we could probably devote maybe a whole episode to what is evil. I'm sure there um, are. We can probably knock it out. Like, episode six, what is evil, will give you all the answers then. Just keep listening, okay? But according but to this story. According to this story with what it is. So, like, the first thing that I scribbled down for this was there's an innate evil in the hotel, but then I, I don't think that that's right. I think that it's sort of talking more about evil coming from trauma and from like being developed over time as something and like you see that with the individual characters with how Jack probably becomes an evil character through a series of choices that he makes throughout things, a series of circumstances that he's put through that leads him to that. Like a series of reactions to things that he experiences? Right. Um, the circumstances and the way that he handles them like sort of creates an evil with, within him. And similarly, like, the Overlook has become evil because of the things that have happened within it. I have to assume that the Overlook wasn't built as an evil hotel. Like, I feel that that would probably come up at some point when Jack's got his scrapbook and his old, like, basement logs and things. Although, in the movie, they say it was built on an Indian burial ground, which is not in the book. Anyway. Like, the Overlook has sort of taken in, like, you... You said, like, it eats its spirits and, like, that energy and stuff. Like, the experiences that have happened within it have created this evil presence. Is my spitball theory coming up on the fly. Like, where does evil come from? Yeah. So, like, there's evil that exists in the world, but there's an extent to which how vulnerable you are to it and how much of it you let in. So, like, I would say that he's saying that Jack's anger and his alcoholism and all these sorts of things make him more vulnerable to that evil to become a tool of it in the end. Whereas Danny has this innocence that's able to shield him from, and, like, this kind heart and, you know, pure golden child that allows him to sort of be shielded from it a little bit, while Jack is more of an easy conduit. Which I realise that really what I defined is, I redefined the question in there somewhere to not have to answer your question, I think. Mm. What, what, uh, what, what do you think for the answer? I think that according to this story, evil comes from self-interest. Okay. And I think that you really see that kind of coming again and again in that Jack's need to feel superior and also need to survive has generated a lot of his most negative thought processes and his most hurtful choices to other people. And not just Jack, but also the spirits and like the, the negative things that seem to haunt the Overlook all also seem related to self-interest. So you have the the lavish parties and like the corrupt like mob bosses and corrupt politicians things like that, that have murdered people in the hotel, presumably over really base things like money and status and things like that. And you have, you know, this woman who was cheating on her husband, the woman in 217 was cheating on her husband with this boy toy that she was keeping. And she ends up killing herself when he leaves. And like all of these are, these are selfish people. There's like this man in a dog costume who's the plaything of this guy who's rich and powerful and like 
it's all of these very toxic behaviors that seem to come from just fundamental selfishness, narcissism, and like a need to feel superior or a need to survive at all costs, no matter Mm. who it hurts outside of yourself. And I think that that message ties in really well with the fact that at the end, Jack is redeemed by letting go of his self-interest and putting his children or his child and his wife, really his child, ahead of his own survival and killing himself, you know, to in order to allow the thing that is exploiting his self-interest to be destroyed. Hmm. Oh, don't. Is that track? Yeah, track. Like, the people who live are the people who are consistently putting others' needs ahead of their own. Yeah. I mean, I think that you might have redefined the question as well. I think No, that... no, where does evil come from? I think this story is implying that evil comes from self-interest, like this base need to be superior and serve your own comfort and your own interests at the risk above of, everyone else. At the risk of being pedantic, could, you, could I argue that it's saying that being self-interested is an evil trait? as opposed to being a source of evil. I know. I think that the evil of the hotel seems to be like layers on layers of selfish behavior. Selfish and dangerous behavior. Of people killing others for status and money and to feel important. Yeah. And using other people to feel important. Which makes it interesting as to... I mean, you make a fair point about like all the ghosts that we see, that we get information on their deaths it's Mm -hmm. about the self-interest except for like some of the people who are killed in self-interest so like what use would danny be to the hotel what about the like i forget what the guy's name was the previous caretaker like grady family grady what use is his family to the well it's not necessarily his family it's him it's that he he had these deeply misogynistic views of like Mm. being the man of the house he corrected his wife and his child or whatever that they were defiant and he needed to be in charge and superior to them yeah i guess that they're just auxiliary to that right and so it's it's about him and his feeling superior and like the man yeah okay fair enough so I mean I think that I think that's the big question and I think that's what I see as the answer in the story. Yeah, I, I think I'm willing to go with your answer on that. I guess for about my own answer, both Danny and Wendy go through and survive trauma without becoming evil in themselves. Mm-hmm. So And I do think that's an important it's that thing point to about, show. It's the point you made earlier about choice. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think I can go with that. I think the bigger question, and this is the question the movie asks us, is how many waves of fake blood of an elevator is the right number of fake waves of blood coming out of an elevator? Um, I mean, I have to assume that we already think Kubrick was wrong, but I'm also not sure how many waves he chose. A lot. A lot of them. He did choose a lot. I personally like, might be of the opinion that the correct number... With the way that it was done, would actually be zero, and you could just lose that whole thing from the film because it's a little overwrought. Although it does give you ample opportunity to notice how they set up the elevator to look like a face. It does do with that. the fans above the elevator, and like, and that that was kind of a neat choice. I know. I feel like also the longer it goes on, and they start like washing the the sillier so- it gets. Like the, yeah. it washes the sofas in and things, and like when they start cutting it with Denny's like horror stricken face, it doesn't it doesn't do anything. It does start to parody itself a little bit. Yeah, I think that if they'd gone for the solid choice of just like some drips 
running down the elevator doors that might have been might have been stronger. I think it would certainly have been less silly. Yes. Could make a really awesome Tampax commercial though. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really hope that someone out there is going to start referring to their period as the Kubricks. Mm. I feel that there aren't enough euphemisms out there. Really. Just the overlook elevator. The overlook, the elevator's opening. Well, it doesn't open. It just, it, like, right, it doesn't. It, it just like, not one. <laughs> okay, moving on. Fun facts. Do you have any fun facts this week? I did think it was interesting, and in the it's not necessarily fun, but in the uh, introduction to The Shining that Stephen King wrote in this edition of the book, he talks about some of the choices made in the movie and that, I don't know, he's very kind to Kubrick, but says that, you know, it seems that Kubrick has decided that there isn't any magic powers or psychicness going on in the film, but that he, or like that the hotel is really haunted, but that in his mind, when he was writing the story, like the hotel is totally haunted and like definitely at fault for a lot of the bullshit going on. So I thought that was interesting. It's interesting. I'm not entirely sure that I agree with him because if the only person that ever saw stuff was Jack or if there was like a shared hallucination between Jack and Danny, but because in that those final scenes when Wendy's running around panicked, like she sees like skeletons in the ballroom and things. Yeah. Which... Manages to be one of the creepier moments of the film, in my opinion. I disagree. I don't know, there's just something about the image. It reminded but... me of the Haunted Mansion in Disneyland. Yeah, okay, fair. Well, I've not been to Disneyland, so I'll just have to do with Kubrick instead. Pretty much on the same level, right? But, like, because Wendy sees stuff as well, like, I think that there's... Like, I think it would be hard to explain away as purely a psychological thing, but he, he does definitely, like, lend more towards it being psychological and less the actual possession type stuff which i think is a shame okay so i've got we'll say two and a half fun facts mm-hmm. well that was more of a tangent yeah okay fair enough so i i like dedications in books that say something mm-hmm. so the dedication in this book is this is for joe hill king who shines on it's also dedicated to his editor but it's that that first line that really gets me a because joe hill king a he named his son joking which is never going to not be funny to me. And Joe Hill King now goes by Joe Hill and is an author in his own right, which is kind of fun. But when this was dedicated to him, he was five years old. Also, the, like, shines on thing is a little bit weird, but there's, like, sort of a Danny-esque thing going on there. I don't know, like, the five-year-old. Yeah. But I thought that was interesting. The other thing, and this is, um, I have to hand to the And That's Why We Drink podcast, because they turned me on to this one. They talk about it in episode 17, so if you want to go listen to them, they do a ghost story and a true crime story every week. But the hotel in The Shining is based on a real location. It is the Stanley Hotel. It's apparently an extremely haunted hotel up in Estes Valley in Colorado, and the hotel was built on native land. So presumably when in the film they are like, oh. oh, the hotel was built on native land. It's not quite as, I mean, they choose to accent that, mm-hmm. which might be problematic, but it was actually a hotel built on native land. To give like the briefest history, they give much better in the, and that's why we don't podcast. Apparently an Irish Earl moved out there in 1872, as Irish Earls were apparently want to do, and started a brothel. 
and then I wrote in the in brackets afterwards, screwed the natives, which was not the best phrasing I could have used. <laughs> um, but yeah, he uh, he decided to like buy up all the land so the natives couldn't have it because again, that's apparently what Irish earls did back then. In 1903, Friedland Stanley took over the land, who proceeded to build the fancy ass Stanley Hotel. He was the inventor of the Stanley steam car, which was apparently the most popular car in the US until the 1920s, which is why he had the money to build a fancy ass hotel. He died in 1940 and had been sort of footing the bills for the hotel to keep it going. So by the 1970s, the hotel was like getting ready to close. And in 1973, dear Mr. King visited the hotel just as it was about to close up for the winter. I'm going to go ahead and say that there are a couple of bits of this that I did fact check with finding a quote from Stephen King. The majority of the paranormal stuff in here I did not hunt down sources for. I'm going to take, and that's why we drink words for it, but take it with whatever pinch of salt you'd like. So they arrived just as it was about to close up for the winter and were pretty much the only guests in the entire hotel and the events that took place inspired the book. It was certainly creepy and they like were served dinner by themselves in a grand ballroom where all the other chairs are up on the table and there was like um, orchestral music being played through a radio or something. While he was there, he had a dream about his son running down a corridor being chased by a fire hose. When everyone else went to bed, he went wandering around the hotel. And according to the podcast, again, did not fact check this, so whatever they say, he saw phantom children in the halls, despite the fact that there were supposed to be no other guests staying there came across a phantom party when, again, there was supposed to be no other guests, and saw both a child and a chambermaid in his room. The room that they were staying in was, can you guess? Presidential suite? No. Room 217? Room 217! Where apparently the room and those above it were at one point blown up because a maid went into the gas lamp and the gas had been left on, and the whole room blew up. Um, A feat that the maid survived by being blown downstairs and breaking both her ankles. And uh, Mr. Stanley then effectively gave her a very large quantity of money for the rest of her life and pretty much was like, you can keep working here, you'll never have to light another guest lamp. Mm-hmm. And then the final fun fact I have, which is tied to this, is that they made it room 237 in the film rather than 217 because the hotel that they filmed it in didn't have a room 237 but did have a room 217. Heard the and other way? No, they didn't have a room 237, and they didn't want to lose guests because they thought oh. that the room was haunted. So they were like, it has to be a room that doesn't actually exist. So room 237 doesn't exist in that hotel. They did have a room 217, because they didn't film it in the Stanley Hotel for mm-hmm. whatever reasons. But uh, you can go and stay in the Stanley Hotel. It is still around. And room 217 is apparently booked for roughly the next decade. By Stephen King fans. I have to assume so. Or at least it's booked up on Halloween for next. Mm. But yeah, those were my fun facts that I thought were fun. Yeah. There we go. I that, think so. That's what I got. And I think that is about the extent of the podcast for this week. Which is good because we're going to have to do some editing on this. Oh yeah, definitely. Okay, so we are planning on doing this as a weekly podcast. I believe that we have the next couple of episodes planned out. I think next week we're looking at the books, not the TV series, of Good Omens by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett and American Gods by just Neil Gaiman. So stay tuned next week for that. In the meantime, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Unramblings. 
You can find us on Twitter at UnramblingsPod, because someone had already taken Unramblings, which I'm only mildly better about. And if you have any questions or whatnot, you can email us at unramblingspodcast at gmail.com. You um, also welcome other people's feedback, and we will be addressing feedback and follow-up and late thoughts on previous episodes, so if you had interesting things to contribute to this discussion about The Shining or other future episodes, definitely send us an email. And also, if you could, and I, I get to feel really cool for saying this, if you could rate, review, and subscribe, that would be uh, cool. You're not going to get tired of saying that at all. I, I'm already a little sick of it. Mild self-loathing, I have to say. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Definitely rate, review, and subscribe. Preferably on iTunes, because I hear ratings there are worth more than anywhere else, because Apple is Apple. Taking over the world. I didn't say the meanest thing I had written, but... I can't remember what the meanest thing was. Well, you were saying, like, oh, he's, you know, a great filmmaker, and I said arrogance is often mistaken for greatness. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, might be unfair, but um, we might not keep that in the podcast. Or, or we might. We'll find out, I guess, and see how much hate mail we get. Mm, the hate mail, especially because I'm saying it, and I'm a woman, and, like, what the fuck do I know? Apparently oh, there's, there's going to be a whole lot of sexist bullshit, because I fully expect that with any public endeavor. If it's any consolation for us to get hate mail... Someone would have to listen to our podcast. That's true. I'm personally hoping that by the time we hit episode 50, we can manage to have 50 downloads. So That'd be nice. That's, that's my dream, which just requires one of us to download it every week. Yeah, we can probably manage that. Yeah. Other than we might have to listen to ourselves. Yeah, you, you're not going to enjoy the editing process, are you? Yeah.